All right, welcome back to the Paperless Fairlist. I'm Justin. I'm Kerry. Uh, hey, Kerry. Uh, welcome back. Today we're we're talking about Fairlist number twelve, the utility of the union in respect to revenue, from the New York Packet, a Tuesday, November twenty seventh, seventeen eighty seven. Um, written by Alexander Hamilton to the people of the state of New York. As is the tradition here, we tend to do a quick summary, and that's what we're going to try and do again this time. Sounds good. Let's stay with that tendency. All right. So I'm going to start off. Uh, I owe you. I know I owe you a few carries, so I'm going to be doing the uh, the summary this time. All right. Let's start paying that debt off then. Okay. All right. Well, what better time? Because I suppose you're you're collecting tax back from me in a, in a way. An excise or usage tax. Yes. yes. It's an yeah. indirect tax on your uh, summaries. On my summaries. So, um, and that fits uh, with You'll never this. even notice it. No, I won't. No. <laughs> that fits well. Um, with with the theme of this paper, um, Hamilton starts and he says, you know, commercial prosperity promotes the interests of revenue. I'm sorry, its tendency to promote the interests of revenue will be the subject of the present inquiry. So that's the subject of the paper. He starts off. He goes, you know, the prosperity of commerce is really where it's at, uh, and that commerce is the way to build a, a national wealth. Uh, and he and he goes, look, everybody likes money. Who doesn't like money? Okay, the assiduous merchant. Can't argue with the man there. The laborious hus- husbandman, the active mechanic, the industrious industrious manufacturer. All orders of men look look forward with e- uh, eager expectation and growing alacrity to pleasing uh, reward of their toils. And he just he, everybody likes to get paid. Who doesn't like to get paid? Is what he says. So everybody likes money. That's established right off the bat. And he, he talks about the relationship then between our, uh, agriculture and commerce. Uh, and he says, look. Their interests are intimately blended and interwoven, and he poses a question: How could anybody? How could it other happen otherwise? And and he says, you know, it's really astonishing that anybody would ever have suggested otherwise or argued otherwise. And he goes on. He goes to say that you know the ability of a country to pay its taxes must be always proportioned to the amount of money that's in circulation within the system. Commerce, he says, renders the payment of taxes easier and facilitates the requisite supplies. To the treasury, he goes on. He gives an example of the emperor of Germany at the time, uh, and he says, "Look, you know, Germany as a country has a lot of lush and mild and temperate, uh, uh, lush lands that are in mild and temperate climates. They've got great gold and silver mines, but because they haven't developed commerce in that country, they can't. They can barely pay their pay their bills. And if they ever had gotten engaged in a long war." Or you know, long or continued war, they're going to need to have outside resources to help them sustain the campaign because uh, they haven't developed co- developed commerce within their nation. He goes on to say that it is evident from the state of the country as as they are at the time before the constitution is adopted that it's just not practical to raise a large sum of money from direct taxation, and that every you know all the different states have tried, and all the different schemes they've come up with and tax laws they've come up with have just been defeated and and just have demonstrated that you can't tax your way. To wealth, he goes and says, "Well, let, then he takes the example of Britain, and he goes, take a look at Britain. They've got this great national revenue. They've got a ton of, of, of resources and wealth that they could be taxing directly, but the majority of what they tax comes from indirect kinds of taxes, such as impost taxes, excise taxes, things of that nature." And he says, "In America, you know, it's going to be, it's pretty clear that we need to depend upon those alternate streams of revenues, such as uh, duties, but they need to be narrow in scope and encompass because." Otherwise, people are going to start to become upset by farmers. uh, You know, you can't tax farmers too much directly because uh, they just don't, the money's not there. And personal property is kind of this sort of invisible fund that you can never really know how much is out there. And it'd be too hard to really pin down and, and tax with any specificity. And so he says the state of things which best enables us to be able to tax commerce is one general union. 
and he gets into discussing that. He said they're going to be more efficient at it, and the rates and the duties to be more productive. Then he talks, and he says, the relative situation in the states, he said, you know, if the states aren't bound together in a union, there's going to be a lot of illicit trade going back and forth between the borders. They're not going to be able to secure themselves. And it's a problem that's commonly found in Europe, where you have trade that's going between the countries through back channels, uh, deliberately designed to avoid direct taxation by the different governments. And he talks about France, and France has roughly 20,000 soldiers that they use to try to prevent this illicit trade. And he says, look, that just is something that uh, that amount of money, uh, um, uh, patrol, would just not be um, acceptable to a free country such as ours. But he says, we're fortunate that we're butted up against the Atlantic coast. And if the country was in one union together, we'd only have one side to guard against, and that'd be the Atlantic Ocean, which provides a great buffer. And you would only have to defend the Atlantic coast and the main ports with a few ships because uh, people who are coming across the ocean would not dare uh, to run the risk of sort of unloading their cargo randomly along the coast somewhere as opposed to in a port. Ultimately, then he goes, if, if we can't do it this way and bind together as a nation, we're going to end up taxing land and landowners. The horror. You know, <laughs> yes. Uh, to an, and, and even though we we do tax the landowners, and that's the alternate method of trying to raise revenue, not only would people be taxed into submission uh, or oppression, the treasury would still be empty anyways because you would never generate enough money that way. So that's that's the, the top to bottom sum breakdown, of, as I see it, of Federalist Number 12. It's all about taxes. And, yeah, I and, think that's a fair description. And who doesn't love taxes? So, you know. <laughs> Hamilton clearly loves it. Loves oh, yeah. Loves, loves discussing them. Yeah. I think that, uh, you know, it's really fascinating to me, uh, and I never thought of this before, where America stood here was on the crossroads of how countries understood the wealth of nations. Okay. And that, that phrase is suitable, is uh, fitting, because Adam Smith published The Wealth of, Na- wealth of Nations in 1776. That, this, that really changed how countries thought about national wealth and economic power. Because before then, you know, you think of the classic, the times of the Spanish conquistadors and all the other countries, how they thought about wealth at the time. What wealth meant if you were a country was gold and silver, Mm -hmm. shiny metal. If you wanted your country to be wealthy, it was a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. You had the metal or you didn't. Mm -hmm. You wanted to have more of the silver and gold than everyone else. That's why one of the reasons why all the the, uh, European countries were sailing all over the place just crazy for finding as much silver and gold as they could and that was one of the reasons at the time the chief reason that spain was such a wealthy country is because it grabbed every single piece of silver and gold it could out of the new world in all of its colonies and so there was a very simple understanding of what wealth was before uh colonial times it was Mm -hmm. your silver and gold your hard currency and starting with the turning point in my mind of the wealth of nations and progressing to the modern day you know we don't think about national wealth the exact same way you know when you we don't go and uh, think of wealth only as being silver and gold uh you know america's currency isn't voted isn't uh focused on gold anymore you know you this idea that it's not just metal you dig out of the ground but you can create wealth through trade Mm-hmm. And through economic activity that you, that your nation engages in, and the Wealth of Nations was just published at the time, not very long prior. I mean, you got it was published in 1776, but it takes a while to get that circulated throughout. You know, for people your, to, yeah, I mean, there's and so no one no one has Wikipedia back then. Yeah, you know? that's true. So yeah. they can't just look stuff up. So 
So he's there, and there's, it takes even after you've read it, it takes a while to start having that become an accepted idea and work that yeah. into, um, you know, accepted common, conventional wisdom. Yes. And so he's sort of standing at the crossroads here. You can see Hamilton sort of has one foot in each world. He's talking about well, silver and gold. Yes, you know that's important. You can't have more currency out there than you have silver and gold to support it. But also, you could do this commerce thing as well. Mm-hmm. And maybe if we did more commerce. It would make up for the fact that we don't have much silver and gold. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe that's the, even the more important part. Mm-hmm. And he almost has to take that position. Yeah. Because. Uh, What's the all, alternative, right? Yeah. Just, America doesn't have much silver We just silver don't have money and we're screwed, right? Because, <laughs> you know, we, we might not focus on, you know, when, is, yeah. when, Amer- when if we say that the American states were colonies, that means mm-hmm. something. We don't think about it now. We just think colonies. We sort of yeah. think of it as synonymous with states. What it means to be a colony in the British Empire is you were a source of raw materials and wealth for the core. For the crown. It's much, you know, mm-hmm. we don't like to think of ourselves as we were once under the thumb of Britain in that way, a lot like a lot of the other British co- colonies like India or, you know, in places in Africa, etc. But yeah. the whole goal of the British colonial system is wealth is produced in the colonies and it goes back to England. So an active part of British colonization at the time was any hard currency in the form of silver and gold went back to England whenever because they would ship us finished goods and whatnot. We'd buy them and send them our hard currency. So that when we were successful in the revolution, America did not. America had a ton of land. Yeah. It did not have much silver and gold at all. So we didn't really have a choice. Mm-hmm. We had to figure out. We had to go the Adam Smith <clears throat> route mm-hmm. because. We couldn't have gone the gold and silver route because we didn't have a lot of gold and silver to no, use. No, we have a ton of raw raw materials, ton of yeah. ton of resources. Yeah, but not a lot of precious metal. Exactly, but it can be cumbersome to uh, buy everything in wheat or, or trees. tobacco <laughs> or trees. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, the number of trees you can fit in your wallet very limited. Very limited. So sorry, excuse me. I just um, thought it was interesting how they're sort of standing at the crossroads and taking yeah. a position of necessity. Yeah. That is that you know I hadn't I hadn't thought of it like that uh, I just kind of went through it uh, top to bottom uh, as I read it and uh, that's that's some good insight. Is there some um, anything else that, that pops out of you here? Because um, he talks you know off the bat and says everybody loves to get paid. Uh, we need to have agriculture and commerce are going to work together. You know agriculture, it, you know commerce is really the vent that allows agriculture to to to, to bloom out into the world mm-hmm. um, and and to expand. And as commerce grows, the the value of land grows, mm-hmm. uh, and as that happens, you know, the agriculture will 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 increase as well because you know cities will be built off, more people will be there, and and agriculture will, will you know, it's all it's like a symbiotic relationship. Yes, exactly. And he seems, you know, it seems to say like this is just seems he doesn't use the phrase self evident, but it just he says it's astonishing that anybody would ever say anything otherwise. Yeah. Like, i.e., if you're arguing against me, you're an idiot. Anybody it's pretty much, yeah. yeah. This is, I mean, he's got, cool. he, there's, he, he uses a phrase later on that has that sort of same kind of uh, tone to it, uh, that, that something must be palpable to every man of discernment. You know, basically, if like. If you're above, if you're above, like, if a you're certain not, level of animal intelligence. Yeah, if you're not you're a knuckle dragger on the ground yeah, walking exactly. around, you know, uh, if you have any, any education, you would never argue against me on these points in this paper is kind of what he seems to be referring to. Which is funny because, I, you know, if, if the fact that he has to write this at all and the fact that 
there had to be a constitutional convention and writing on the Constitution. She yeah. says it's not self-evident because, yeah. I mean, in a way, saving this paper for number 12 is sort of bearing the lead because one of the primary motivators for moving from the Articles of Confederation yeah. to the Constitution in the first place was the fact that the government was broke. They had yeah. no money. They had nothing. They were deeply in debt, and they had no money and no plan to get money. And he talked about that. And he says, you know, not only do you need – you like you. You've got to have money for a government to work. Like this, it's money is the lifeblood of the government. Yeah. And if you don't have money, you're going to be relegated back to a province, or or just be run over, um, because you're not going to be able to defend yourself. And we talked about that in other papers. Yeah, just be some sad commune. Yeah. That can't do anything <clears throat> with the base except achieve basic sustenance. So, you know, he starts off here and says, "Look, we all agree you've got to have money." But the reality is, is what the states have been doing in their legislatures and all this tax regulation and tax law. I mean, they're literally trying to squeeze every drop out of, a, of blood out of a stone that you can, and it's not working. Yeah. You know? Well, because he's comparing and contrasting how taxes will likely be under mm -hmm. the Constitution versus to how they, they have been in the states. Yes. Under the uh, Articles of Confederation. Yes. In the states under the Articles of yeah. Confederation. Yeah. Confederation. And. And he says all the states are trying to do it different ways and do it independently of each other. Mm -hmm. And they were. And, and it's not working. But again, on this idea of commerce, he references the emperor of Germany. And he talks again about how he's got all this, much like America, all these flowing fields uh, that are fertile and lying there waiting to be developed. Germany is the sleeping giant. <laughs> you know, and nothing's happening. And, you know, the, the emperor's just not, not developing it. He's not building up his commerce. And that's why... He, they really, he ends up having, the Germany has to lean on other people for support at the time. So I feel like he's a little bit sloppy in his argument on Germany. There Probably. <laughs> he could have used it better, honestly, because Germany at this time, this is the time where Germany's not united. This is the time yeah. still where the Holy Roman Empire is in effect. And for our listeners, basically what that means in a nutshell is that Germany is essentially a very similar to the Arctic a weaker version even of the Articles of Confederation. Okay. It is not one united centralized state as it would be in the 20th century. Germany is essentially a hundred different squabbling principalities Okay. where they are tiny little uh, states, some of them no bigger than like modern American counties, and they all have their own rulers and their own policies. And so the reason I think it could have been a stronger argument there is he's trying to argue that getting together could make them more effective and yeah. the American colonies, mm -hmm. American states, whereas Germany is a great proof of it. Germany could never do anything then because they were so busy fighting each other. They couldn't have any common trade policy or commonwealth because they were divided so much it's, among themselves. It's, it's, it's interesting that he uses Germany as a negative example here. When earlier they talked about how, you know, they reached out to the King of Prussia, uh, you know. Well, Prussia was a strong one that was one of the two strongest states in Germany. I understand, but yeah. I mean, like you know, he's he's picking Germany as an example of of, of a country that mm -hmm. you know a section of the world that can't get things done because things are underdeveloped. Oh yes, you yes. know, but you know they also reached out and said, "Hey, <laughs> we could use a king." <laughs> yeah, I think so, Louis Hamilton just wants us to politely forget that. Forget game. about that part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, because Prussia, Prussia was the state, though, that eventually... Prussia was the German state that eventually came to dominate Germany because it was Prussia mm -hmm. and Austria at this time who yeah. were the main ones fighting to control Germany. Okay. 
well, not to rail off too far into German history, um, but <sighs> that'll be the paperless German historians down the road. Okay, well, <laughs> watch for that and more. <laughs> One of the major themes, though, I think, goes throughout this paper that I think when when we're talking about different aspects, we're going to keep coming back to is, yeah. like you were saying, he's gonna, he's trying to compare and contrast how attractive taxation will be, how joyously and painlessly oh, yeah. you'll be paying your taxes. The, 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 the cockeyed optimism here of the just seas and rivers of money and gold that will befall us well, you'll ne- is, is you'll on never par. never feel the pain. And you'll never feel it. You'll never see it. You but know. on this um, one, I give him more credit because yeah. under the Arts of Confederation, your t- the tax valuation, if the states ever actually paid their tax assessment to the government, they were supposed to be based on the value of the land. Yeah. And incidentally, this that's actually where the three-fifths number for the three-fifths compromise in the Constitution came from because in valuating the, the value of, of uh, southern states' uh, slaves, mm-hmm. that's where they, they did the three, that's where the three-fifths number came from. But getting back... You know, I didn't... Wait, no. Say it again. I didn't follow you. The three... Flesh it out. Yeah. I know where the three-fifths compromise is. Yes. Um, well, they, it originally came from the Articles of Confederation. And okay. how much, how they'd be evaluated for property value purposes. Okay. Huh. I did not know that. Okay. Um, so it was used for a different, completely different reason. But overall, your property was the basis of taxation under the Articles of Confederation. But then at the state level, as Hamilton hints at, there were all kinds of different ways the states would pay. But a lot of them were relatively direct taxes. A lot of southern states based their tax values on, you know, how much tobacco you you know, and you'd pay it, you know, based on your tobacco. And then New England states would have anything from poll tax, uses taxes, direct taxes. And then, um, you know, other states um, would have more in the way of duties. But what he's trying to do throughout here is to put up this boogeyman of, we know you hate the kind of taxation where someone's going to come to your house, write a bill, and you've got to hand them a bag of money. Direct yeah. taxation of, yeah. you're... Your income is worth this much a year. Here's how much you owe. Give me the money now. Mm-hmm. It, instead, there's going to be this indirect taxation where anything that comes into the country, there's going to be a an import fee paid on it. It might increase the cost of the goods a little bit, but you'll never even notice it. No one will be coming <clears throat> to your house and demanding money. So it's mm-hmm. attractive to the, the regular people because then they don't have the tax men coming around that they're going to hand a bag of money to. Uh-huh. But also, it's attractive to the good government folks because mm-hmm. you know, there's no W-2s at the time. You know, this is not a world in which yeah. there is a bunch of uh, there's a, a a bunch of computer databases where you could track how much everybody's making, and you could take out the withhold money when you gave it to people. You know, you go out to the frontier. God only knows how much wealth people are producing yeah. and making. There's gonna yeah. there's gonna be a lot of tax evasion. <clears throat> no, so this, this is a tax one. evasion. Tax evasion. <laughs> even then, even even our forefathers weren't immune to it. Wow, but I am shocked. By contrast, when a boat comes into port, it's ver- that's a very easy place yeah. to you have your tax collector that's down on the Five hundred barrels of rum. You know, he counts you off say. how many crates come yeah. off. He looks yeah. what's in the crates. You pay the taxes right there. Yeah. Much cleaner. Much easier. And more importantly, for all the voters, they're not paying the taxes directly. Yeah, so they don't they don't see it. That I mean, they feel it. It's a better, it's, nicer way of paying taxes. Look, it's easier it's easier to collect, and that's one of his points: is if you have a unified tax system that's run at the federal level, 
it's easier to administer. Yeah. It's consistent. Um, and it's easier to it just it just collect the money is yeah. what it comes to, okay and and the, the average person won't see it won't feel it now they'll still I mean they won't recognize they'll that their dollar taxes. that their dollar is only going ninety percent because there's a ten percent of it is going yeah. to pay this you know the cost of goods go up because the taxes and the ports yeah. go up and you know and the average consumer at the time is not probably sophisticated enough to understand the workings of money and monetary exactly. systems. Although, and so isn't it ironic that this is essentially the tax that, that went on British tea that provoked the Boston Tea Party? Because that was the same thing. Yeah. Oh, we're just going to put this tax on the stuff we're sending you. You'll never notice it. You're never going to have to hand over a bag of money. Yeah. But it's just going to be invisible tax. It's pretty much the same thing. That there, yeah. the colonists threw it all in the river and started fighting. But here, it's going to be great. But there's representation now. <laughs> That's true. To the extent that the common man is represented by Alexander Hamilton. Or the founding fathers who went to closed session to write up the Constitution. Exactly. But in theory, representation. In their representation. <laughs> yeah. Even if it's behind a closed door. Uh, I closed they door voted on it in the end. And they were represented <laughs> by their state ratifying committee. There you go. I guess. There you go. Anyway, so I guess we can move on from Germany and yes. move on from the general theme now that we got it. Well, then he goes to talk about Britain, okay? And I was reading this example about Britain, and I thought to myself, not to be too critical of, of Jay Madison and Hamilton, but they always reference Britain. It's Britain and Rome and Greece. Doesn't I mean, that come back to what we talked about uh, last episode, that fear of inferiority? Yeah, it does, I guess, but it's they like... They still think of them as a little bit British. We, we always, a little bit British. We, we like to talk about these guys being, you know, men of the Enlightenment. And and you know being extremely educated, but man, all I, I, they just use constantly use Britain as the as the as the the gold yardstick. standard. Yeah, I think the, we you know, could use that phrase here the gold, the gold, gold standard. standard. Yeah, uh, of of how to run and how to be and have an effective government. Uh, you you really have that uh, a bit of an inferiority complex. It seems like in some ways here. Yeah, and and the sense that they've got to stand up and be just as big and as bad as. Well, and they still think, uh, you know, in as, so many ways, the British way is the best way. Yeah. They just felt like they weren't well represented by it. But all right, so let's talk, let's talk a little bit about, here the example of, of Britain. Which example are you referring to? He talks about how Britain, in this uh, example, the one I'm looking at, about how the good chunk of the revenue is brought in from impost and excise taxes and, and not direct taxation, even though they're sitting on a ton of wealth and they could be taxing it directly. Yeah. They're not. Uh, and that's and they and and they are gaining a ton of wealth by do, using that system, and it's working for them. Mm-hmm. And look how well it's working for them. Yeah. And we're not having to tax the land and the personal properties of the citizens, or Britain isn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we should be doing that in America. So do you and, think he's trying to reassure the readers there that even as we develop and we'll be more able to do it, i.e., when we don't have a frontier? Yeah. We're gonna. This would still be the best way of doing it. I think he's trying to reassure the landowners, okay. you know, that when hey, if there's this unified federalist government with this treasury and and tax system in place, we're not gonna come and pound your land, knock on your door, and grind you into the ground. Mm-hmm. You're still gonna be able to go about your business. We're gonna get all this money from over here, these impost and excise taxes, and you're never like we said, we're never gonna see it. And it's it's, yeah. it's working great in Britain. Britain is a wealthy nation. We'll be wealthy too. Yeah. And Britain would have a much greater ability if they wanted to, to do the direct taxes yeah. directly on people's 
businesses and lands mm-hmm. because the British don't have a frontier in it. You know, Britain yeah. is a relatively small, contained, developed area at the time. Yes. Not like America where you have places beyond administrative reach. Yes. Then he goes through like the three ways that America can collect taxes again. We get arguing for uh, usage of of the excise taxes, but they got to be narrow in scope. You can't just go crazy with them, otherwise it's going to upset everybody. And I think there he's kind of referencing this idea of what you talked about, how some of these taxes were with the Tea Party. You know, um, it's like if you go hog wild, you're going to upset everybody. So your 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 use of excise taxes has to be focused. And you can't, you're not going to get, he reminds everybody, you're not going to get it from farmers and you're not going to get enough money from, from just, just You could really take that states, you know? argument more than one way because you know, looked at it from a cynic's point of view, it almost seems like Hamilton is saying things that only a relatively small, weak, weak group of people are involved with so they can't fight back effectively. <laughs> or even more cynically, yeah, that's things more, I don't like. Things I don't like, yeah. Things well, I don't like to be taxed. He, uh, Let's see. He gets into that a little bit later on. He talks about the the whiskey. I didn't want to the go there yet. Yeah. Okay. Did, but All right. That's what I was thinking. That's of. what. Yeah. I get the fan. He's not a big. I get the idea that Hamilton is not a big fan of whiskey. Therefore, he's he seems, fine with yeah, taxing. So as he later will. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that. All right. Uh, and it's true. It's true that what he's saying is the regarding it's hard to tax the farms. Yes. Because again, especially as you move towards the western frontier of America then, these are, as per the Jeffersonian ideal, they're mostly self-sufficient subsistence farms. Yeah. They have everything on the farm that they use on a day-to-day basis, mm-hmm. and they don't have a lot in the way of hard currency, mm-hmm. and that they rely heavily on barter. And so you don't have families that have a lot in the way of actual cash. So yeah. if you go out and ca- tax them, they don't have the cash to pay you. The only thing they could pay you in is what they produce, which is hard to transfer into hard currency form for the government yeah. um, and hard to transport and hard to administer. And so I take Hamilton's point that it's hard at the time to effectively tax farms because, you know, what are they going to do? Give you a bag of beans? Yeah. Pay you? Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. not going to – is take, it worth that collection? Yeah. And are you going to take their, you know, one – piece of equipment off the off the farm and and leave them even harder yeah. where they, then they well, can't, even their equipment they can't might farm. be just something they made that's yeah that's the a, one yeah. thing they have a value is the one thing that you'll provoke rebellions at which if you take and that's their land yes so hamilton goes on and he says okay well let's run this scenario then of, of if there is no union what do you, what's going to happen and you're going to have all these states and they're going to there's going to be a lot of illicit trade between the states and by illicit he means trade designed to avoid these excise taxes between the between the states or between the or the confederacies if, if the the colonies formed into separate confederacies. Mm-hmm. This is going to work just like Europe, but unlike Europe, the state governments here are not going to be in a place in a position to be so rigorous with enforcing their independent individual excise taxes. And and uh, border security. They don't have the relative resources. They don't have the resources yeah. to do it. And, and before we even get there, I yeah. think we should go. Uh, yeah, before we get to the army of okay. patrols, our army. Okay, good. I think we should focus on what he's talking about there, with the states being in competition mm-hmm. with each other or opposed to each other in trade policy, 
versus having a common trading block yeah. against the outside. So, you know, for say for example, you've got like uh, a state like Delaware or something, and say it's got you know what he's talking about here. Say Delaware does a ten percent tax on any imports, mm-hmm. and then all the states touching Delaware do a say a fifteen percent. Yeah, you know what he's saying there is look. It'd be very easy then for merchants to come into Delaware, pay only the 10% tax, hide it in the back of a wagon, and just ride it into neighboring states mm-hmm. and make a 5% profit versus you know who You know who tax. would be the below market state? Well, that would be Rogue Island, obviously. Of course. Well, obviously. Rogue yeah. Island. <laughs> I'm actually surprised you didn't call them out there. I was history. trying to <laughs> give them a break, but I guess I can't. Even when I try. <laughs> Even when I try. But this is the Rivers and Ham part I was talking about. Last oh, okay. Episode. I didn't want to. Yeah, this is what not... talking about. The rivers, that the situation, the states, how they're united. How John Jay yeah. was talking about the rivers that unite America yeah. and the different states and make it easier for them to communicate. And the common language and yeah. habits and everything else that unite us, it also makes smuggling easier. Because it's just Conspire as, to render illicit trade. Yeah, just yes. as the rivers make it easier for us to trade our ham, yeah. it makes us... It, it, it's darn easy to smuggle ham in America. Yep. You throw that ham in the back of a salt wagon and you drive it right into New York and nobody sees it coming. Yeah. Uh, but and I, and I neglected that. We talked about the rivers and everything, making it easier to trade. But also, again, Jay talks about in an early, his earlier paper how uh, you know we have these common cultural norms, we have the common language, we have the common habits. So we should be one country. Yeah. But similarly, you know, it's a lot easier to sneak into a state and smuggle stuff if when you come in, you speak the same language. No one could tell. You're from Delaware and you're in New York yeah. because you speak the same language, you have the same customs. So it makes it easier to be a smuggler. Whereas if you came in speaking French, they'd be like, uh, what? You're probably I'm, not from around here. I'm going to say this. I, I don't think that, while I think that would be very easy today. Smuggling I, ham? I, no, no, no. Well, yeah. But <laughs> like <laughs> smuggling ham, I think, has always been easy. But I mean, <laughs> I mean, I feel like, like I need to do a study on that now. From like, if I'm from Ohio and I, you know, I go down to, to over to Delaware, okay, and within a certain radius of Ohio, yeah. I'm, I'm going to blend in fairly well. But even today, if I go all the way down to um, rural areas of uh, uh, like South Carolina, just my accent alone will give me away as having not been around there. Like, I mean, when but I it's a lot easier than if you didn't speak South it, Carolina. It, it, look, it's it's much easier. You're right. Yeah. But but that's that's now in in today's America, I, I I posit that back then, if you're from, say Rhode Island, and and you're trying to smuggle something down to South Carolina, mm-hmm. I I think you'd stick out like a sore thumb if you were generally from Rhode Island and you were an Upper New Englander and you made it to the Deep South. I think you'd be it'd be pretty quick because the cultural differences were were, were a little more defined between the states. Uh, there was obviously you've not put great thought into your prospective Rhode Island South Carolinian smuggling ring. <laughs> I have. Okay, go ahead. Fire away. <laughs> that's why you don't do it as just one person. You have a South Carolina Rhode Island smuggling network. Oh. You have one guy who maybe takes his south far south as Maryland, he trades it off to Virginia, he takes okay, it to North right, Carolina. Right, right. It's I don't think small. Okay. When I'm think, smuggling Yeah. When I'm smuggling products down to South Carolina, yeah, I have a crew. You it's a crew? like a heist movie. You got it, yeah. So yeah, okay. if you're if you're so foolish and so naive, <laughs> uh-huh. 
has to be the lone Rhode Islander oh, who man. thinks that they're going to make I'm a sorry. killing yeah. in South Carolina. You yeah. will fail. I will fail. But you're me right. and my my crew, your network, we will be making some serious. You're like um, you're like uh, Rob, Robert De Niro in in Heat, right? You know, you just you got your whole network of, of it's like an Ocean's Eleven, Ocean's Eleven, Twelve type yeah. thing. Yeah. So, <laughs> anyways, <laughs> but it's just interesting that to me of we're revisiting this this J idea of the effects of the things that unify America also cause complications. Complications, yeah. So, uh, that said, uh, can we get into the armies now and the patrols? Let's All advance right. to the armies and patrols. <laughs> Let's advance in the armies and Nick, Mr. So, Necker's comments about them. Oh, yes. Well, it's, how could we ever, you know, Mr. Necker has been given short shrift in, in the foot play, uh, footnote of history. Uh, here, called out in Fairless Paper by his 12. own country, you know, and well. no one, no one talks about Mister Necker. So, <laughs> anyways, so back to the paper for the listeners. Assuming you're still with us, the uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, but, um, the Hamilton goes on and 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 says, look, if if the states, if we don't form a union, we don't join in together. Uh, and you're going to have this problem of smuggling in between states, and you're not going to be able to deal with it the same way Europe does. And he gives the example of France, and he talks about how France has large patrols to try to shut down this illicit trade between it and uh, other members of the the, the general continent of, of Europe. Uh, and he references Mr. Necker, uh, who at the time apparently uh, estimated that there were roughly upwards of 20,000 uh, soldiers uh, in France who were and Mr. Were Necker was the French Minister of Finance. Oh, thank you. <laughs> that's that's you who it, he was. You looked it up for us. Thank you. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> there, we could do a whole episode on Mr. Necker, but for our purposes here, the reason he knows he's not okay. just some guy Hamilton met on the street. And be like, do you know how many armies and patrols France had? He wrote a book okay. about French finance, and that's right. something he was famous for. And well, that's where it comes from. Thanks for working on it. I hadn't got around to figuring out who Mr. Necker was. Uh, but, but it would have been nice. Right, you he would have given yeah. his whole name. Yeah, it makes it sound like he's just some random dude, but he's yeah. not. He was the he was a Swiss banker. Became French Minister of Finance. Eventually oh. died in disgrace after the French Revolution. I think that's all we need to do. That's all we need to talk all day about Mr. Necker. I can tell. I can, you know, <laughs> uh, maybe we'll do an episode on Mr. Necker. <laughs> but Mr. Necker's neighborhood. There you go. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. The, um, <laughs> it was not a beautiful day in his neighborhood. It was a heavily indebted day for his neighborhood. Yeah, that's interesting. We're quoting Mr. Necker. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm I'm just putting things together here. Anyways. Um, uh, it, Hamilton says, look, that, that system of having roving bands of soldiers going around America in this free nation to, uh, you know, try to enforce and collect taxes is just, it's just not going to work. We're a free nation. Yeah. And pe- the people are not going to put up with that sort of, sort of standing force roaming between all the states. Because that's, that's per state then. You're going to have to have large and bodies. And even if they would put up with it, we don't have enough money to put that many roving bands on the road. <laughs> I think that's one of his major points. Like, yeah. you've got France. That's a relatively densely populated country of limited territory compared to the United States. And they have a very high density of these roving patrols, and they still can't collect all the taxes. America is much larger, and I don't see America as being able to fund 20,000 roving bands at the time. Nope. Nope. Even if they are very small roving bands. Yes. So um, the... He goes, but con- on the contrary, though, if you have one federal government with one tax system in place, 
you're, you're only going to have to defend against one border, and that's the Atlantic coast. And this is going to work out much better. You just have to have a reasonable degree of vigilance, a few ships out there in the water by your major ports to collect stuff as, as, as uh, other countries bring it in. And they're going to go to the port as opposed to some random stretch of beach because what are you going to do? You're going to... Keep your ship over the side and keep, watch ashore. Keep your ship out on the out on the open water. Yeah. Try to lower it down into smaller rowboats. Row it in, put it on a beach, and then when you get to the beach, assuming you manage to do that without dumping any of your cargo into the yeah. ocean, okay, as you're coming into the to the land, you get there and there's no roads and there's no system to 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 offload it and to get it into the country. And so you have no way to actually ship it across the land then. And then if assuming you also manage to make your way back out to your ship and sail away, all without having been undiscovered. It's just it's, it's too burdensome, so no one would ever do that. So of course you're going to go to the port. Yeah, I mean, and you're going to pay your tax. Ocean trade <laughs> by throwing random crates of products over the side of your boat, and hoping or just to depositing them randomly yeah. along the stretch of coast in which there's no infrastructure to receive yeah. it. Throwing you know? stuff over the side, hoping it washes ashore, and they're going to throw some money back to you. Yeah. Is not the best, it's not safest gonna... way to conduct trade, which is why we don't do that now. Generally, people go to ports. Yes, even now. I've, I've been on yeah. a lot of beaches during my life, but I've very rarely seen large containers like of no, no products no. laying there on just, the beach. Yeah, or some ship just didn't come in and drop a drop a container. Yeah, know, say here, here's a container of jeans. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Maybe we don't buy jeans. The news. <laughs> we We're throwing it over the side. <laughs> so, um, but he's got a great point because. Yeah. You, again, it's not even the entire Atlantic coast. It's not like you're going to have to have a a, a patrol ship going every few down. miles yeah. because anything that's beach, you don't have to patrol. You really only have to patrol places that are good enough to land ports and harbors. Yeah. Um, you know that that was proven very explicitly in the Civil War mm-hmm. when the uh, the North imposed the blockade and people thought it would never work because oh, you can't blockade the entire Atlantic and Gulf of Mexico coast, mm-hmm. and they didn't need to. All they needed to do was blockade the ports. I mean, yes, they did throw some stuff over the side and send rowboats <laughs> ashore, but it, you don't get a lot done that way compared to what you could do at a port. So uh, he said the other advantage we've got going for us as one union is our distance from Europe. Um, and this, in a way, kind of sounded to me a bit like repeating the last one. Um, hey, we got the Atlantic Ocean, so... Well, you, know, you can't argue, you know, we do. You know, and it says, hey, we all, uh, Europe is also far away because it's on the other side of the ocean. I know, it just seems like he's repeating himself a little bit, but in, in this sense... Well, I think the point he's trying to make is that... They're too far to smuggle stuff in. Yeah, it's not like exactly. it's not like South Carolina is going to smuggle something in North Carolina. It'd be England trying to smuggle something into, you know, New York and or Rhode Island. Although and, I think it's <laughs> interesting that he just mentioned in the last paper some of the issues of... I think he brought up the... The West Indies and the existence of those colonies. And yeah. Hamilton was also born in the West Indies. <laughs> so I would think he would, well, conveniently he forgets yeah. that the West Indies are pretty close. Yeah. Someone could ship stuff into the West Indies and smuggle them in from there. So, well. But all, yeah. but that's. Yeah. But for, but for this point, all of a for, sudden, all of a sudden Europe is on the other side of the ocean and yeah. it'd be oh, such a great distance to try to smuggle something in the United States. Yes. And for the <laughs> most part, Europe is far away. Yes. For the most part. Um, the, and what Spain still has. At this time, colonies down, right? Don't they? Florida, Florida, yeah. yeah. Florida's still Spanish. Florida, Spanish, time. and 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 the, at the mouth of the Mississippi is still Brand- Spanish. Spanish at this exact time. At this time, okay. So because that's where Europe's that's not quite as far away as the navigation. The Spanish issues. That was the last paper. 
That was the last paper. Oh, I, I know. Let, let it go. Yeah. I wanted to mention that. Well, mention it now. What's what? Well, re- retroactively remember, listeners. Yes. That last paper. Okay. If you're if you're if yeah. you just listened to that. Uh, yeah. At the time, the Spanish owned new, uh, the port of New Orleans. Yeah. And so they were first. The, one of their positions was they were closing it to all American trade, but you couldn't send any ships uh, down the Ohio or the Mississippi and get out to, into the ocean. Mm-hmm. And then they then were trying to. Uh, negotiate and them then later France say that okay we'll let you come down this river but we're going to charge every ship that goes through it you know basically like treating it like the Panama Canal you can't yeah. get out into the ocean unless you pay us some money mm-hmm. give us our bag of gold there you go wish I hadn't so, let that go by no, well you got there <laughs> alright so so, <clears throat> so Europe's far away um, and then he goes on and he says hey look one national government we're going to be a lot more efficient and 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 doing the taxes, um, and he, he gives the example again. He says, "Look, France makes a ton of cash, and Britain makes even more, and we're, and the states are only maybe making three percent, where France is making fifteen and Britain's making twenty percent. Mm-hmm. You know, so then there's quite a hefty tariff, though. I'm just yes, <laughs> that's, that's why they, that's, that's why Britain's got sales so much. tax. Yes. <laughs> I got again. I got to say, if you only got eighty percent of your dollar." You're gonna notice it, <laughs> right? but you won't because you'll never know. You'll never know. You'll, yeah. you'll never. It won't. When they sell it to you in the store, they're not gonna say, "Here's how much it would have cost." It would have cost. You're just gonna yeah. find a price, especially the time. Yeah. I mean, now arguably I could, you know, Amazon it and see what what it's being sold for on the other side of the world. But that's the benefit of technology in the modern era. The hey, uh, you can't even put together a multi-person smuggling ring. You're not gonna put together <laughs> Amazon at the time. <laughs> Well, certainly not. No. <laughs> so, anyways, uh, back to what Hamilton's saying, though, in the paper, he's, he's talking. He says, "Look, there's nothing to hold us back from at least tripling the excise tax, nine percent. You know, and at that point, we'd have money flowing in. We wouldn't even know what to do with it." Yeah. And he did. This is where he gets on with whiskey, and he says, "You know." Well, he, before we go to whiskey, I think there's one more thing, real quick, before we get before. Oh, there, okay. Is because sure. I, I think we we need to focus on it because he's forming a contrast. Okay. Yeah, you know, we were talking earlier. We gave that example of if the different states have different tariffs, you know, yeah. there's going to be smuggling, and also there'd be incentives for someone to be like that Delaware yeah. to have the lowest tariffs, because then all the trades coming into them, they're that's getting big ports. That's the free market, man. They're the trade system yeah. at the disadvantage of other states, and they're not going to help to try to enforce smuggling rules because they're benefiting from Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And so, but by contrast. If you have a unified tariff versus the outside, mm-hmm. uh, and internally there's no barriers, then all of the states will be equally incentivized to enforce it because no one is collectively getting a benefit or a, a, a penalty from mm-hmm. not, no one's getting a benefit from not enforcing it. You know, all of them want the revenue to go into the system. None of them have different incentives. And so you have better and more uniform enforcement. And also the different ports of the different states will thrive based on their merits and not based on being a smuggler's port or a gray market mm-hmm. port yeah. you know, to encourage people to just go there because of the lowest tariffs. So I think it's, that was yeah. important to cover. That, no, absolutely. Unified yeah, interests under that. the Constitution. Absolutely. And that, yes, yes. Um, so now to whiskey. Now to whiskey. whiskey. Okay. The rivers of whiskey. The rivers of whiskey, the, which will bring rivers of gold. Um, the liquid devil. Of whiskey, the, the great <laughs> so, uh, evil drink. So H- Hamilton, uh, for the listener, it makes this um, 
hypothetical about how much money the United States could get if there's a unified tax policy on on bringing whiskey in. But then he concludes and he basically says, look, if the people argue and they say, well, you're going to you're going to destroy the market for whiskey because this tax is going to be there and it's going to increase the cost of the whiskey and they're not going to be it's going to people aren't going to buy as much. And so you're not going to really have the revenue that you think you're going to have because the market will will dry up in a way. Uh, Hamilton says, so what? Like, <laughs> what's that matter? That just means, um, you know, uh, it's, it's better for archi- agriculture to the economy and the morals yeah. and the health of society. And because there's something, uh, uh, perhaps um, nothing so much a subject of national extravagance as these spirits. And so he's like, I could care less. I mean, if there's like no whiskey comes in at all, like it's we're going to be better off anyways. It's <laughs> the origin of the syntax. Yeah. You know, it's like if there's things that we think are morally less good, we can use taxes both to get money, but also discourage use. I mean, yeah, even more than alcohol taxes, probably cigarette taxes are oh, a great yeah. example of this now. Of, yeah. you know, who's going to cry about all of the heavy taxes on cigarette use? Yeah. They're bad for you anyways. What are they? They're like, like $8 a pack now? <laughs> <laughs> they might be you know? at that 20% level or more. <laughs> I think they passed that up they, a long you're time right. ago. They probably left you that know? forward. That's be something um, to look up is... They're pretty heavy. They are. I'm just I'm shocked that anybody buys them. You know, to be honest, which is probably why you you've developed such a robust market in the modern time for the uh, uh, the e-cigarettes. Oh. Like not only yeah, is I'm it, not sure how they test the plot of those. I know, but I mean, not only is it uh, you know seen as a healthier option. I'm not endorsing this in any way. Uh, but you just got your check from the e-cigarette people. But no, I did not get any money. There's no money coming in for the funding of this podcast or in any way. <laughs> the tobacco or the e-cigarette people. But my, you know, it may very well be that that industry uh, became not only did it become attractive to consumers as viewed as a healthier option to, compared to the traditional but cigarette, the cost. but the cost as well because the taxes on the traditional cigarette got to be so high. You know. I don't know. That's total speculation. I don't really yeah. have any data for that. I just well, you know. uh, on the whiskey. Yeah, I think what's interesting here is interesting for two reasons. One is you know it's obvious that Hamilton sees this possible whiskey tax as a panacea. Of, well, we're getting so much whiskey in. Yeah, that just that alone will solve a lot of the funding issues. Two hundred thousand pounds, man. I mean, that's that's all the money in the world. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well. For the time. For the time, absolutely. I know. I'm joking around. Uh, um, but they were drinking a lot of dang whiskey, apparently. Apparently, uh, yeah. Four million gallons. <laughs> four, wait. <laughs> didn't the last paper they talk about how they, like, at the country at the time, there's three million people? <laughs> like, they were thirsty people. They were thirsty people, um, apparently. <laughs> but also, I find it interesting that he's here he's focused on an import tax on whiskey. And I find it interesting because... When he becomes Treasury Secretary, the first Treasury, Treasury Secretary of the United States, one of the th- the pro- issues he gets himself embroiled in right off the bat is the whiskey rebellion, where he tries to tax whiskey domestically, and it's and again it's an excise tax. The tax is on the people who produce it, not the people who buy it. And he again thought it's going to be an invisible tax that no one's going to notice, and there was armed rebellions against mm-hmm. it and people fighting it and tarring and feathering the collectors of it mainly those you know wasn't like whiskey factories that yeah. were doing that or with factories distilleries yeah um it was the small farmers out on the frontier who might have a still and produce you know 10 50 gallons a year yeah and to use that to sell or use it, it to get hard currency and yeah. uh, he thought that people weren't going to notice it 
because as a use tax, I think in the modern way of seeing things, he said he, a modern politician would say, well, what about small business? Because that's what he didn't consider is there was these small producers who were like family producers mm-hmm. and a use tax on them was not invisible. It was a direct tax. So just uh, by way, a quick Google search, uh, U.S. Census in 1790 showed there to be 3,929,214 people. So a few years after this paper was written, there would have been the equivalent of one gallon per person per year. Of and that's just imported. Imported. That, that doesn't count what they're no, making. No, it doesn't count what they're making. So Americans... Uh, that was just your Sunday whiskey. We're having a good time. Sunday best whiskey. Sunday best whiskey. The yeah. imported stuff. The imported stuff. So... Um, then Hamilton gets on to the lad towards the conclusion here and says, "Look, at the end of the day, you know, a nation cannot exist without revenue." And he's right. I can't. There's no real debate. I think about that. You've got to have money. You could run the whole nation as a nonprofit. Hypothetically, that was the Arctic Confederation. Like donations only, please. You can deduct anything you did. You donate yeah. to the government. How, how well did that work? It did not. Did not. No, it did not, not work, work at, all. at all. So, um, like I said, nation can't run without money. <laughs> yes. Um, and and he, you know, he, the revenue has got to come in, and it's got to come from somewhere. And he basically concludes by saying that either we're going to do this and have these excise import taxes, yeah. and we're going to run this as a collective union and be efficient and good at it, or we're not. And if we don't, what, what's going to happen is we're going to tax your land like that's the next valuable thing that we can go after and that's what exactly, exactly. what will happen and either by the states the running theme. yeah either the states are going to do it individually or the federal government will do it as a whole but you know at some point the only other thing that's worth anything over here is the land and it's going to get so hey landowners who might be voting and in, in state you know uh states uh that might be considering ratifying the constitution yeah because you're men of arguably there would be the men of wealth you know uh They'd be up for in a position to vote on ratifying yeah. this or not ratifying it. Um, guess what? If this doesn't go through and we're not a United Nation, you know, the states taxman's coming. Taxman's coming from gold. your land. So you good know, what? Do you, good, good luck finding your gold. So, and that's kind of where he leaves it with sort yeah, of. a... I think that's the paper. Like a threat. The paper in yeah. a nutshell is to work. The country's got to have money. Yep. For money, you got to have taxes. And if you, under the Constitution, it's the most painless tax as possible. It's just this invisible tax that boats are paying when they're unloading. Yep. You won't have to pay anything. And I gotta say, it sounds attractive. Next time there's an election, the guy is saying all taxes, no income tax, just boat taxes for people coming in. Mm-hmm. I might consider that candidate. I think that <laughs> boat taxing scheme, that sounds good. I like it that. Sounds good. You like that? Yeah. Let's just put it exclusively on. Whiskey being coming into America, um, <laughs> I will have to survive exclusively on Kentucky bourbon. Okay. And But in exchange for having to pay no income tax, I'm willing to make the sacrifice. You want to make the sacrifice. No income yeah. tax forces you to, yeah. to drink solely Kentucky bourbon. Only boat taxes. And you're willing no to go No people there. taxes. All right. Well, I don't know how that would work, uh, but I'll let you live in that fantasy Hamlet, world. <laughs> do you, are, I, I do not doubt the wisdom of the framers. I'm willing to put my faith into Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> Okay. Maybe at the time. Well, maybe at the time. Um, anyways, well, that wraps it up for what was kind of a crazy and weird episode. Um, thanks for sticking with us, uh, everybody. And, we'll see you in um, 13. In 13. Lucky number 13. Yes. All right. Um, take care.